Good evening. Why don't we start with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you once again for the uh, privilege to worship, privilege to gather. Thank you for giving us a place, for protecting us. And may our time tonight be worshipful to you as we look back over history. Teach us what uh, we would be better off not repeating. I pray that we would uh, grow wise through our understanding of history and that it would cause us to uh, bring greater glory to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. History is a funny thing to look at. Um, it's it's strange to to uh, to study. There's just so many mistakes made, and then you see it's the way it is today. I'm just amazed at how how silly people can be, and the evolution of the devil, the de evolution of uh, the way Protestantism has has come about in this country. It's just interesting to see. I'm not going to get through all these tonight, but everything I don't get through. We'll pick up next week. So I'm picking up next week. This week is what I didn't get done last week. So you're not missing anything. So America, 1750, 1840. Last week we got here. Our people got here. We looked at that. Our people got here. What happened? What went on? It was uh, good, bad, and ugly. Mostly ugly. Uh, what uh, uh, Puritans brought over here to be biblical, purify the church in England, and then the separatists came over here. Let's start something pure. Uh, they believed they were God's chosen people, the new Israel on the new chosen land, the new Zion, America. I don't believe in that theology, but these were well-meaning Christian people that wanted to start something new. And before long, Puritanism had turned to deism. As we saw last week, uh, deism essentially says, you'll look at this and you go, it's not really that bad. It just misses a lot of good points. Uh, there's one God who made all things. Amen. He governs the world by providence. Amen again. He ought to be worshipped. Uh, by adoration, prayer, and thanksgiving. Hallelujah. Service to God is doing good to man. Serve your fellow man. Absolutely. The soul is immortal. That's fantastic. These are their tenets. But there's nothing here about Christ being God, the Bible being inerrant. Um, God rewards virtue, punishes vice. He does. That's true. But salvation by grace, virgin birth, the things that we hold near and dear uh, you can't just take a little bit of pieces from the Bible, what you like. You just can't. People still do it, mind you. It's in churches all over the planet. We just take what we like. You know, we don't like that doctrine, so we don't want to talk about it. People say that about churches today. Why do y'all talk about that? We have that all the time here. Calvinism, why do y'all talk about doctrine at the church? Because God told the preacher of every church to preach my word. Do it in season and out of season. Talk about what my word says. If it divides people, then it's dividing the sheep from the goats. Talk about it. You found a church in Harvest Bible Church. I will never stop preaching until you get rid of me. It's got to be preached. People are ignorant, and as being ignorant, they are unsaved, and a bunch of unsaved people come to church, and it's preaching to goats. It's the tares among the wheat. You have to preach doctrine. You preach that which divides because you get this garbage in the end. And this garbage has tainted not only our country, but the modern church. So I showed you last week some of the Enlightenment thinkers embraced deism, seeking a universal foundation on which all religions could agree. Let's just agree, you know, because God is love and wants us all to sing Kumbaya. Boy, I'm, I'm feeling juicy tonight, aren't I? <laughs> Sometimes I don't know what, what mood I'm going to be in until I get here and start putting it out. Deism, God created the natural, left it to, to exist without him. He exists, and he should be worshipped. As I said, Scripture is not inspired. Reason is. God rewards good, punishes bad. The human soul is immortal. 
And a good Christian admires the ethics of Jesus Christ and follows his example. That's what people today who call themselves Christians would say. And it comes from teachers and men of influence like this. You see Ben Franklin, David Hume. Um, there's uh, Immanuel Kant at the bottom and Jefferson, Voltaire, a few others you may or may not have heard. But these men influenced this country uh, adversely. I'm not going to go over the small print. Revival in America actually began in Germany uh, by my man, I just, I can't ever not say his name because I love it, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I mean, imagine that in the back of a football jersey, Zins von Zinzendorf. <laughs> hey, von Zinzendorf, von Zinzendorf. Great man of God. Beginning in the 1720s, Nicholas von Zinzendorf and the Moravian Pietists held a prayer meeting at Hernhut, Germany. In literal obedience to 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Leviticus 6.13, prayers continued around the clock. Pray endlessly. That's what they did. And they began to pray in Germany. In the United States, what followed von Zinzendorf's lead was a man named Theodore Frelinghausen. We looked at him last week. And Gilbert Tennant, they arrived in New Jersey preaching the true gospel and Calvinism. Calvinism was the doctrine. And mind you, Calvinism, as I've taught you, if I've taught you anything, it's not about teaching the teachings of John Calvin. Calvinism is just simply synonymous with biblical Christianity. Teaching the Bible. If you're a Calvinist, it means you're teaching the Bible, because that's what John Calvin did. So it's called Calvinism. Just the Bible, what the Bible says. If it doesn't say it in the Bible, we don't believe it. If it's not mentioned in the Bible, we don't we use our wisdom on what to do or what not to do. Calvinism. Frelinghausen and Tennant, the early arrivals to this country, that's what they preached. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor from Northampton, Massachusetts, preaching Calvinism, the doctrines of God's grace through faith in Christ alone. This is important. I keep pushing this because don't ever let anybody tell you these aren't important. They are vital when these doctrines are not taught. The church just becomes full of tares, tares among very, very little portions of wheat, um, some of you come from very Arminian backgrounds. I'm sorry. I did too. I came from an Arminian background until I started reading the Bible. Jonathan Edwards hated, loathed in his own testimony, hated the doctrines of grace. He hated Calvinism. He hated any of that garbage until he came to know Christ. And he said, his words were, it came to be the most beautiful doctrine to me in all of Scripture. As any of us who have come to that same conclusion can attest John Wesley and George Whitfield began a revival in England and brought it to America, preaching faith in Christ alone, as we saw last week. Gilbert Tennant brings, uh, he was in New Jersey. Um, Harvard and Yale up to this point had become liberal. Now remember, Harvard and Yale were originally founded to preach Calvinism, to teach teachers, or preachers I should say, to educate them to be biblical preachers. But they had become somewhat liberal. Tennant had established a school in New Jersey to train evangelical pastors. Any of you know what Log College became? You'd be surprised. Whitfield and Tennant published the document, The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, claiming that many of the ministers in the American colonies had not been born again. we got the same problem today, and it's as a result of liberalism. If you've got liberal people or people going to a liberal Harvard and Yale or any liberal seminary in our day, what does it produce? A liberal tear among the wheat, who comes out with a nice $700 suit and, and, and candidates to preach at a local church, and people love him. He's good-looking. Look how beautiful his wife. Oh, aren't his children's cute? He knows how to teach. He's a great, what do we call them, communicators. Where does the Bible say we're supposed to be good communicators? Preach the word. But let's hire this guy. He looks great. Liberal. Liberal 
And what had happened then is now happening now. And so they're seeing people in the church because of unconverted preachers. Unconverted preachers produce unconverted people. The scandal in the colonies birthed Princeton, which will be the next. We look at it as an Ivy League school. It was the next school because Yale and Harvard had become liberal. This, could be the con- this was the conservative Presbyterian church teaching Calvinistic doctrine. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, that's true. John Wesley thought he was converted, came to the United States to preach the gospel from England, was on a ship on the way over with a bunch of Moravians who were followers of John Hus, and they were all calm and everything. The ship was going to sink, and it was in a storm, and they were sitting over there singing hymns and looking forward to dying and being with Jesus, and he realized, he was so scared, he realized, they know Christ, and I don't. I'm coming to the United States to preach, and they're the ones converting me. He feels like he got converted there, he went back, he never embraced uh, the biblical doctrines. Uh, he believed later that he could become perfect. John Wesley died a man who did not think that he, his words, I do not love God, in his letter to his own his brother Charles, I do not love God and I preach that people should. He didn't think he was saved. He wasn't sure, at least. And that follows Arminian non-Calvinist doctrine. You can't know until you go. It's just like uh, Roman Catholicism. No good Roman Catholic can ever believe they're saved. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church anathematizes anyone who thinks they have assurance in salvation. Ben Franklin comes along. He wrote of George Whitfield, who was a Calvinist preacher going around the United States, part of the First Great Awakening, and he said, I knew him upwards of 30 years. Isn't that great? Ben Franklin knew George Whitfield. They were friends. Franklin says his integrity and disinterestedness and indefatigable zeal in prosecuting every good work it takes a while to say those words. You've got to practice them. I have never seen equaled, and I shall never see excelled. He admired him. He loved Whitfield. He would not believe everything Whitfield believed. Mr. Whitfield, he said, used to pray for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. So in the results of this great awakening, that, uh, with the, and believe, this is all me reviewing what we did last week, as you know, with religious fervor heightened across the colonies, state control of churches was broken down. And that's really where we live today. In that situation, state control of churches broke down. We've got a separation of church and state. But it was breaking down there. And it was broken down. A new spirit of interdenominational cooperation was born through this great awakening. A spirit of intercolony cooperation was born. Authority of the local pastor was broken down. People now chose their own beliefs. In other words, no one told you how to believe. There was no state church um, we saw people like Roger Williams, I want to believe this. He bought land ends up in, in uh, Rhode Island. And then you've got William Penn in Pennsylvania. You've got the Quakers. Everyone's going to their separate location, believing what they want to believe. Though beneficial, it also led to the breakdown of the authority in America. Everyone now can do. This is a, a distinctly Western thing. I get to do what I want to do, whatever I want to do. That, that wasn't the attitude until... The United States came into being, and it wasn't in 1620. It was right around the 1700s where people started, hey, I'm my own person. Nobody tells me what to do. Back in the day, people told you everything to do, right down to where you worshipped, who you worshipped, what you did. If you don't do it right, if you do something that's irreligious, sacrilegious, 
you could be killed. It could be capital punishment for such because there was no difference, no separation between the church and state. So the marketing of religion began in America. Well, you've got this little group here, this little group here, this little group here. What do you think all the pastors are doing now? Competing for people to come to their church. Sound familiar? There you go. Make it happy. Baptist and Presbyterian denominations profited the most. I should say also the Methodists. The enthusiasm of the revival was a precursor to modern Pentecostalism, and Unitarianism was born. Unitarianism is, hey, God is everywhere. God's whatever you want to make him. We're all unified. We all love God. He, all, he loves us. We're all good. No need to preach that Calvinistic doctrine that you are saved by God's grace through faith alone. No need to talk about doctrine. Some people still believe that. People still come into Harvest Bible Church and believe that. They never come back. And they'll say something ugly on the way out. They just want to divide. Right, look, I'm following a call that God, a call, we always say a call, that God put on my life. I have to look at God every day. I don't see him, mind you. I'm not talking to him other than in prayer. But I've got to face God one day. Lance, did you preach my word? Well, Lord, you know, I couldn't build a big enough church preaching your word. That, that offended too many. That doctrine offended too many people. It divided. I don't want to face God that way. I don't want you to face God that way. I don't want any of you to go off liberal. I don't want any of you to go off and think that, that preaching doctrine, believing doctrine, sharing doctrine is somehow beneath you. Or that's for those crazy churches. That's for the church of Jesus Christ. So these deists in America, Ben Franklin was one of them. He wasn't a Unitarian. He didn't believe, he, he had all those tenets I, I listed at the beginning. The eternal decrees of God, election, reprobation, etc. appear to me unintelligible. Hmm. I'm sorry, Ben. John Adams, second president of the United States, quote, no prophecies, no miracles are necessary to prove this celestial communication. This revelation has made it certain that two and one make three, and that one is not three, nor can three be one. We can never be so certain of any prophecy or fulfillment of any prophecy, Adams says, or of any miracle or the design of any miracle. He created this speck of dirt in the human species for his glory. This is sarcastic, and with the deliberate design of making nine-tenths of our species miserable forever for his glory? Wretch. That's what he calls the biblical God. Good president, intelligent man, burning in hell. Jefferson said the book of Revelation was the ravings of a maniac. Just happened to be the apostle John. I'm certain he wasn't a maniac. He says, I am a good Christian, a man who reveres Jesus. Though I cannot accept his godhood, still I accept his moral system. Well, so I guess Jefferson, when he faces Jesus, look, Jesus, I can see that you really are God now. And uh, I can see that I shouldn't have just accepted your moral system. I should have bowed at your feet as the eternal God Almighty. Can I come in anyway? Folks, what we believe, what we believe about God is everything. As a pastor, it is my responsibility to teach everything I can about God with no excuses, with no apologies. You love that. Not all do. I still hear people come in and out. I don't know why he's got to be that way. I have to be this way. I have to live with myself and I have to face the Almighty God one day because people like this exist all over our planet and in the church of Jesus Christ. Some of them are preachers. We don't believe he's God, 
but we like his moral system. And they act real good, and they're good citizens. They're just not Christians. Thomas Paine made no bones about the fact that he was no Christian. He said it is better, far better, that we admitted a thousand devils to preach publicly than that we permit one imposter or monster such as Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and the Bible prophets to come to us with the pretended word of God in his mouth. What is it that the New Testament teaches us? To believe that the Almighty committed debauchery with a woman engaged to be married? And belief in this debauchery is called faith? Thomas Paine, the age of reason. This is what, these are the roots of the United States of America, folks. These were some of the founders, what they believed. American Revolution, we're not going to go through the whole American Revolution by any stretch, but this is, as you can see with the people I'm quoting, this is, we're in a time where that's happening. American Revolution, you'd think, okay, hey, we're all wonderful Christians, let's start the United States of America. It was started by deists. What preceded French and Indian War in the, 19, in the 1750s, it was the British on one side, the French, and the Indians on the other side, Canada, New England, Britain won, but spent too much in the process protecting the colonies. They wanted the colonies to help pay for their protection, so they taxed them. And as you know, this is what hacked off the colonists. Sons of Liberty, like Samuel Adams, rose up. The tea tax remained. No one liked the tea tax. They were not being represented in what would be the United States. They were being, all the laws were being done in England, and you're going over here and taxing us, but we, didn't, we don't have a say. That made them all mad, as you know. Samuel Adams led the Sons of Liberty and the colonies to rebel against England. They orchestrated the Boston Tea Party to keep the conflict alive, and they succeeded, causing King George to strengthen his resolve. So now we're going to have a war. Increased taxes included the Stamp Act, luxury taxes, and rioting in New England nullified these taxes. These people wanted representation. Essentially, they wanted representation. So the revolution in the political order, as pastors began focusing on the revolution against the British, the revival fires of the Great Awakening began to fade. And as, as I read, what I read in, in, uh, about the pastors at the time is that the pastors, in the day and age, as the, as the Great Awakening is waning and people are becoming more and more independent-minded, is that they held sway. They, what the pastors did... That's when they had influence. People followed, and people wanted revolution. I mean, I've thought about it many times. Would I want revolution? Would I have been a pastor that said, yeah, it's time to revolt? Uh, you know, if you're a Presbyterian and you're a follower of John Knox, you revolt. I mean, no man-made government's going to govern us and tell us what to believe. So there's that side, and then there's other that says, look, just quote Romans 13 and do what the government says. Move on with your life. So you can go back and forth on which, who was right, but uh, the pastors began focusing on the revolution against the British. Um, the Great Awakening was fading, and they were not as biblical, we might say. Many pastors favored the revolution, with one pastor declaring the cause of America is the cause of Christ. I wouldn't have said that. I would have said maybe we need to fight if we want to worship freely. Uh, we have the right to do so, maybe. Today, if we say that today, I mean, that could come about today. Does that mean we all go lock and load? Are we going to shoot people dead to, to, for our right to, to, uh, to spread the gospel? I'll kill you so I can spread the gospel to others. It's a strange thing, but maybe we do. Others, including John Wesley, opposed the revolution. In the end, the United States won independence from Britain. Was it by God's will or man's? There are some right, that write books that say this is God's thing. God did this. Well, if we won, then was it the will of God or the will of man? Is God allowing man to win? What is it? Because the United States wasn't necessarily 
wanting to bring glory to God, not at this point. They wanted their independence, and they were willing to fight for it. Not saying it's right or wrong, but uh, was it God's will or man's? Did God bless this country? Has he blessed this country? We give God credit and glory for that, but I'll leave it as a but. Was it justice of rebellion? How did the churches feel about the revolution, about Romans 13, which says obey your governing authorities as God-given authorities? Pro-revolution, those who were for it were the Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and the Baptists. The Baptists would fight for it because everywhere they go, people kick them out or drown them. We're going to fight for our independence. Anti-revolution with the Anglicans, Methodists, Quakers, Mennonites, some of whom were just like the Mennonites, were uh, just pacifists anyway. The third article, in the third article of the, of the New Nation's Bill of Rights, Roger Williams' vision, remember Roger Williams from last week, found its fulfillment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, which became First Amendment. Susanna Wesley this? Uh, she doesn't. Susanna Wesley enters into this. Not She never came to the United States that I'm aware of. Um, she birthed, what, 17 kids, John and Charles being two of them? I think it was 17. It was an exorbitant amount. Uh, I think back then she was on a television show called 17 and Counting or something like that. <laughs> no, she... I'm sorry? You're curious, what? <laughs> What's it called? Okay. Well, it's more of an honor to her son, John. I mean... Susanna had nothing to do with the starting of Methodist Church. In fact, John Wesley was just a holy roller in, in the Anglican Church, but he had a methodology that became known as Methodism. Um, but I don't think she factors into it at all, other than her bringing it. She was a great woman, I think. So the issues facing the colonies, this is, as you see, the eastern seaboard of the United States. Um, states' rights, slavery in the economy, that was huge. It's all part of our history. Indians and their lands, what are we going to do about those things? Do the states have their individual rights? What do we do about slavery? What if we get rid of slavery? What's that going to do to the economy? The Indians and their lands. Indians said, look, uh, uh, the Americans said, okay, we'll only go this far. Y'all can have the rest. Okay, we'll only go this far. Y'all can have the rest. We'll only go this far. And, you know, Indians started to get a little bit angry after that. Uh, these became major issues. The distribu distribution of land, steadily waning Christianity, and a need for another revival. And you see that in the history of the United States. As Christianity steadily wanes, God sends revivals. We're in a good place for that now, aren't we? Maybe, maybe not. So God sends another one. Or does he? I'm not of the opinion that this was a, an awakening that God sent. just want you to know that. Second great awakening to me is bogus. Uh, the people that started it, it had some good things and God worked through it, but I don't think it was of God. The first great awakening was because it was biblical, and the men who led it were biblical preachers. Not so much in the second great awakening, as you'll see. At the time of the revolution, Americans lived east of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, after the revolution, settlers moved west of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, you ever see Cheryl and I saw one of the best ones we like was in the History Channel on Daniel Boone. That, if there was ever a man's man, it was Daniel Boone. That was the manliest of all men ever. He made shoes from bark on a tree. He got through all these Indians. And he, anyway, that guy was absolutely, he would laugh at us. We are the softest people ever to a Daniel Boone type. Uh, but he was making his way across the Appalachians and uh, chased his way, ran his way back, found his way. Crazy. They keep moving. 
By the middle part of the 1800s, the colonists had settled to points beyond the Mississippi River. As you can see, the pink moving, uh, moving west. And each time, you're upsetting tribes of Indians. Indians needed the large territory. Indians knew nothing of, of owning land. They used the land, all the tribes, to shoot, kill, to be able to, to eat. Americans are all about owning land. A little property, here's ours, this is ours. They shared it. To them, owning land would be like, as, as one author said, it's like us trying to own the air. And, and so that, that was crazy to them. You people are taking over, we can't hunt. Of course, you, Americans wanted them to live like them. Indians are going, no, we don't. The revivals of the Second Great Awakening occurred all over the country, but three major areas of concentration we're going to note here tonight. Right here in uh, Kentucky, if you know your areas, uh, move up here in uh, north of Kentucky. Do you know your states as you go up from Kentucky? Okay, yeah. Indiana, Ohio. I don't. I was waiting for y'all to tell you, so I, <laughs> every time I think I do, I forget it. Up in the New York area. So you're thinking, revivals happened there? Yeah, Second Great Awakening revivals did. Um, and Calvinism had been the dominant intellectual framework of American Christianity for over 200 years, which is to say, Bible-believing Christianity. The First Great Awakening had been Calvinistic, uh, a revival under men like Frelinghausen, Tennant, Edwards, and Whitfield. Um, over time, some pushed Calvinistic conclusions to unscriptural extremes. And many people today understand these unscriptural extremes. That's why they say I want nothing to do with Calvinism. Calvinism does not teach that a person, when you, some say, well, why evangelize? A Calvinist would go up to somebody and never tell them to repent because they just say, whatever, you're, not, you're probably not elect, and if you're not elect, I'm not going to share the gospel with you. That, that is, that's nowhere in the Bible. John Calvin certainly never promoted that. Others go with the ridiculous notion of double predestination, when that is that, that as God predestined some to salvation, he double predestined others to go to hell. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in John Calvin's writings, all were destined for hell. All of us are destined for hell because all are sinners and what? Fall short of the glory of God. If we all burn in hell for eternity, then justice is served. That's the way it should be. But God in his grace saved some out of it. That's God's grace. We can't stop our fall. We are all sinners. We're all dead, and we're dying, and we deserve it, and yet God in his grace saved some. That's Calvinistic doctrine, which just so happens to be Pauline and Jesusine doctrine. That's a new word, isn't it? It's not a word at all. But... People are pushing these doctrines to the extreme. People are saying, I don't want that. I don't want it either. Bad Calvinism is, is not Calvinism. Um, saying that God is in control and we have no ability to claim his promises. Wrong. It's not what Calvinism says. Saying that if you are one of the elect, you will be saved. If you're not, you won't. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, there's some truth to that. But look, if you share the gospel with someone and they receive Christ, anyone who receives Christ was predestined to receive Christ. Their names were written. There's a book that was written before the foundation of the world. Ask any Arminian. Tell me about this book that Ephesians 1 talks about. Tell me about this book that Revelation talks about, the book of life. When was it written? Before the foundation of the world. Names were written in it. How'd they get there? God wrote them. He knew us beforehand, saved us along the way. We don't know who, it is, who they are. As preachers and evangelists, we preach the gospel. Those who respond, that's all up to God. But it is our job to preach it. We don't go around and say, ah, oh, you people are not elect. Uh, God doesn't like your color. I don't see a, an E on your, your forehead. That's just silliness. No wonder people reject what they call Calvinistic doctrine. It's not that, though. It had become hyper-Calvinism, which is not Calvinism at all. 
enter the preachers of the Second Great Awakening. Men like John Wesley hated Calvinism. Later, men like Charles Finney and Alexander Campbell rebelled against Calvinistic thinking. Others deplored the idea that salvation might take a process of years, which is what Calvinists were saying. Some Calvinists would come up and say, no, you need to, over a long period of time, you need to go through pains and blah, 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 and then maybe you'll be saved. No, Calvinism doesn't teach that at all. Share the gospel, and when people believe, they're what? They're saved. Right then and there. It could happen in a moment. But they were rejecting hyper-Calvinism and calling it Cal- what was Calvinism. Finney said concerning the pastor at his Presbyterian church, Charles Finney said, he never seemed to expect nor even to aim at converting anybody by any sermon that I ever heard him preach. If he preached repentance, he must be sure before he sat down to leave the impression on his people that they could not repent. If he called them to believe, he must be sure to inform them that until their nature was changed by the Holy Spirit, faith was impossible to them. So he hated what his pastor was doing. He's a Calvinistic preacher. He doesn't love anybody. He preaches the gospel and leaves. Whatever. Leave it to God. There's no love in that, and that's not what a Calvinist preaches. But that's what Finney's preacher did. This is Jacob Arminius and John Calvin next to each other. The hyper-Calvinistic mindset clashed with a notion in America that all men are created equal, with the individualism, the optimism that men's destinies are in their own control. Are our destinies in our own control? I mean, the next time you or someone you know goes to the doctor with a cancer diagnosis and you're told you'll die in three months, tell me that you are in control of your life. You're not. One of my good friends came in here back in, what was it, uh, 2020, 2021. It was November, Cheryl, right, of 2020. Hey, how you doing? Give me a hug. How you feeling? What's wrong? Ah, my stomach kind of hurts. Three months later, she was dead. Of pancreatic cancer. Three months later. Control of her life. Who of us has that? We don't. But that's the American thing. People believe it now. People believed it then. They wanted to believe it anyway. In this new atmosphere. Americans rejected Calvinism. And they continue to. The second great awakening. Was a distinctly Arminian revival. We're reaping the rotten fruit of that today. And this has affected us. To the present day. So the first camp meeting revivals. You're going to see right there in Kentucky. Right there in Kentucky, you've got James McGreedy, who was a Presbyterian, came into south-central Kentucky, which is a notably immoral place. This is a picture of a camp meeting. Someone took a Polaroid of it way back when. Uh, these, are, these are drawings that depict how many people were coming. Multiple people were saying up to, from 10,000 to 25,000 people were all gathering. This was before microphones. Um, they were gathering for these revivals. What was sparking them? In Cane Ridge, Kentucky, a Presbyterian and a Methodist preacher convicted their audience of sin and the need for holiness. Just a normal Bible sermon. The people responded with strong outbursts of emotional display. Such camp meetings now aimed at conversion, seeking of holiness and emotional outbursts spread across the frontier each summer. Now, I would never say that someone who's heard the gospel is not going to fall on the ground and weep, maybe moan. Maybe do something that other people might not. But the first time one does it, usually another will follow. And before long, the whole room is doing it because that looks like the thing to do. It's like a um, youth camp. I remember at youth camp. I was a Christian. 
I believed I was a Christian when I went to youth camp. And so I never went forward at the, you go to youth camp, you, go, you leave on Sunday afternoon or Monday, you go to your camp and you sermons all week if you're a Baptist like me. On Thursday was the big invitation, you know, and you have the invitation and all the, and before long, everyone, you know, keep drawing out that song. The preacher stays up there until all the youth are up there. I refused to do it. I was not going. I wasn't going to go to the front. I did, that emotionalism, I couldn't stand it. I'm already a Christian. I'm not walking up to the front just because everybody else is doing it. Uh, I remember one guy called me out on it. I think he was complimenting. He said, everyone is up there but you. That must mean something. I said, yeah, I didn't need to go. And I'm not sure half the people that went up did either, but it's, it's learned behavior. Go to Promise Keepers back in 1993 and worked at the Astrodome at the time. And, uh, you know, I remember three guys in front of us. Me, my dad, and a guy named Bill Miller and his, his, uh, his dad. And we were, we were there, and the guys in front of us were just kind of standing there. Seemed like down-to-earth, good old boys. Hands in pocket, like every good Christian should when they're singing. <laughs> Sing the songs, you know, a little movement here and there, maybe. But everyone at these things starts to raise their hand. They're doing like that. And it was so funny as these three guys, about two hours in, all kind of took this motion. Because that was the cool one. The cool guys didn't do this. It was one hand in the air, like you don't even care. And I, and I remember pointing to my dad. I said, learn behavior, Dad. Learn behavior. I mean, if, it's okay if you spontaneously want to throw your hands in the air. I'm not here to tell you you can or cannot. But when you don't do it and you just see everybody else doing it, so you do it, learn behavior. It doesn't mean you're having an experience. Same with same what happened at these camp meetings. People flopping on the ground. This looks like the thing to do. It's what happens in charismatic churches today. How do I know that? Because I'm an ex-charismatic? No, because I read ex-charismatic testimonies. And I've, I've interviewed too many to be members here. And they will say, some of them will say, well, I began to speak in tongues just because I was told I was supposed to. Everyone else is doing it, so I just found some little gibberish and I said it. Tell me about being slain in the spirit. One guy said, I have no idea what it is. He said, I just fell on the ground and started wiggling around because that's what everyone else is doing. If you don't do it, everyone assumes you don't have the spirit. So it's learned behavior. It's watching around. Well, I don't be left out. Just like drinking beer or, or taking drugs. If everyone's doing it, people will do it. Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Here's a, a, a drawing that depicts the preacher up there, his hands in the air, all the people falling down. Um, this is what makes it look like this is it's real it may be with some Barton Stone was present at the Kentucky meetings and described the scene he was a Presbyterian preacher he said it baffled description many very many fell down as men slain in battle and continued for hours in an apparently breathless and motionless state where was this supposed revival we heard about recently I thought it was a college was it Asbury, yeah. And you know, it was devoid of Bible. It was devoid of doctrine. A lot of music. A lot of young kids. That's what these were. You know, the First Great Awakening produced people that were taught about Jesus. The glory of God. These other awakenings and what today qualifies as revival is always surrounding music. Hypnotic music. Hippies, yeah, that was there in the 60s as well. Closing their eyes, strumming that guitar, playing a piano, singing with their melodic voices. Be careful. It can be real. I'm not saying it can't. But this is what passes today as the Spirit of God because we felt something. Now, you feelings people, 
and I'm talking to women mostly because men feel nothing. <laughs> Feelings are not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He preaches truth. God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the Bible. It's inspired. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. If you want to know what the Spirit says, read the Bible. If that makes you feel amazing, then all glory to the Spirit of God. If you read the Bible and it bores you to tears, or you're seeking something different that makes you feel good, don't count yourself among the children of God. If you're looking for an experience beyond the written word of God, I've got no hope I can give you. Barton Stone continues, he says, After lying for hours, they obtained deliverance. They would rise shouting deliverance and then would address the surrounding multitude in language truly eloquent. The bodily agitations or exercises attending the excitement were called by various names as falling exercise, the jerks exercise, the dancing exercise, the barking exercise, the laughing exercise, and the singing exercise. Barking at the moon. And you know, there's a whole movement today that barks. The Toronto Blessing, they, what do they do? They laugh. The Toronto, you ever heard of the Toronto Blessing, bro? Look up the Toronto Blessing. They just laugh. They get into this place and they just go in hysterics and start laughing. And that's somehow the Holy Spirit. These all started long before that. Nothing's new under the sun, folks. Stone continues. He says, much did I then see and have seen since that I consider to be fanaticism. But this should not condemn the work. That cannot be a satanic work that brings men to humble confession and forsaking of sin, to solemn prayer, fervent praise, and thanksgiving. Kind of be confusing, isn't it? Well, wait a minute. These people, they're confessing their sin, they're forsaking sin, they're praying, they're praising and giving thanksgiving. Those are good things. But people can do that without being saved. You can be convicted without being saved. One must receive Christ by faith to be saved. All of these things don't make, none of these things, I should say, in and of themselves, make someone a Christian. And yet people seek it. Cambalism. You ever heard of cambalism? If you're from the Church of Christ or the Disciples of Christ, these are your roots. Cambalism, a movement sprang up mostly among Presbyterians west of the Appalachian Mountains. Thomas Campbell, who was a Presbyterian minister, did not approve of the sectarian nature of Protestantism. In other words, he didn't like all the denominations especially the practice of closed communion. He especially didn't like anyone like Jonathan Edwards who would not allow people who weren't, were unconverted to partake of the, of the Lord's Supper. He thought everyone should be able to take it. He opened communion and welcomed others who believed Christ in West Virginia. Now, how many of you have a, a Church of Christ or Disciples of Christ background? Or what do you know that they do every week that we don't? Lord's Supper, yeah, communion, every week. And that, that kind of starts there, is that back there he said, I, I don't believe in closed communion. It has to be every week, every time we gather. So they do. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just one of the, the hallmarks of what became. He opened communion and welcomed others who believed in Christ in West Virginia. Come on in. You say you believe in Christ? Come on in and partake of the Lord's Supper. His son, Alexander Campbell, uh, came to the United States and joined in with his father. By the way, if you ever meet a Church of Christ, they will say, hey, we are the first original denomination in the United States of America. And in a sense, they, they were. Everything else was Presbyterian, Baptist. This one was formed out of these. <clears throat> so Alexander Campbell joined his father. They sought to form a Christian fellowship based on the Bible alone. Good for them. Fantastic. They just failed. They rejected creeds. How many of you are from a church where you reject creeds? If you're a Baptist, you reject creeds. You may not know that. 
Uh, we did a creed early on. We planted the church and had a couple Baptist people say, well, why'd you do that? It's a Nicene Creed. It's just what we believe. I want you to know it. We don't do creeds. We do. <laughs> it, it can be. Uh, but, you know, when you say we just believe the Bible, you reject creeds. A creed is just a, um, a summarized version of what we believe from the Bible. Uh, and it can be, can be general. It can be very specific. But how many people have you, have you ever met that says, hey, we just believe the Bible, and as they talk, you're going, uh, that's a little odd. You, you might have a Bible verse from that, but the Bible out of context can be made to say anything. You've probably noticed that. Barton Stone, after the early Kentucky revivals, had already led his Presbyterian congregation to renounce its creed and to adopt the Bible alone. Okay. These two groups merged into one. These Presby- this Presbyterian group and the Campbellites, they simply wanted to be called Christians. They did not want to be called a denomination, and so today that's what they are. They're called the, the Christian Church, and then you'll see in parentheses underneath it, the Disciples of Christ. That's where they come from. Eventually, people began referring to them as Campbellites from their founder. Today, they're the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ. My understanding is that the Disciples of Christ split off from the Church of Christ, and they're a little bit more liberal Side, um, I think they're both pretty liberal, but uh, um, not necessarily biblical. If you ever meet a Church of Christ person, they know the book of Acts. That's the only book they think is in the Bible. Everything is from Acts. You know, last year we looked through Acts, and, and I showed you about a year's worth of teaching that Acts is a transitional book. It's, it's a descriptive book, not a prescriptive book. What's prescribed for Christianity is in the epistles. What is described about early Christianity is in the book of Acts. Oh, yeah, yes. Re- baptismal regeneration, it's called, yes. So Campbell, believing in no divisive creeds, they insisted on having no creed but the Bible, and Alexander Campbell said, the Bible alone is the Bible is the Bible only, in word and deed, in profession and practice, and this alone can reform the world and save the church. Amen, brother. I love that. I believe that too. So do you. Alexander Campbell comes along and talks about baptismal regeneration. Why? Because he believes the Bible says it. The Lord saith, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. From Mark 16, 16. He does not say, He that believeth and keeps my commandments shall be saved. Well, he's got a point because Mark 16, 16 does say that. Interesting. I'm going to blow your mind. Some of you, this is going to blow your mind. Mark chapter 16 ends in verse 8. Manuscripts of Mark's gospel up to the 4th century do not contain verses 9 through 20. And here's what's really interesting about it. Mark has a very, when you write as when I write, when any of us write, there's a style we write, right? If you read what I write each week, I put on the blogs, you know there's a certain style. If someone else wrote it, you'd pick it out. Lance doesn't use that word. Or that's not Lance's typical grammar. Uh, You would note that in the language that I use and how I speak. Um, Mark, all the way up from chapter 16 to verse 8, where they go away, they've seen the, the empty grave, and it just says they were so afraid. And it stops there. Somebody didn't like that ending. And so the ending that's tacked on, which is verses 9 to 20, looks and sounds nothing like Mark's writing up to that point. Nothing. It is clearly an addition that someone added, and Mark 16, 16 becomes he that believes 
and is baptized. Matthew, Luke, and John don't say that. Paul doesn't say that. But when you take a path, and by the way, do you know where handling snakes comes from? The longer ending of Mark. The longer ending of Mark that, that, doesn't, that Mark didn't write. They will handle serpents and not be harmed. Ah, so many people have handled serpents, been bitten, and died. But what about John 15, 10 and 1 John 3, 23? Let's look at them. John 15, 9 to 10 says, Just as the Father has loved me, Jesus speaking, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus says nothing about make sure you get baptized or you'll die. But he actually says, keep my commandments. What are his commandments? 1 John 3, 23. This is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us. Anything about baptism there? So I'm going to break this down. We went through this in the book of Acts. We looked at this last year. But um, Mark 16, 16. He who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Notice it doesn't say disbelieved and not been baptized. Believe and baptize are synonymous in Mark 16, 16. Believe and obey are synonymous in John three thirty six. In the name of Jesus Christ, literally honor upon Jesus. And this comes from Acts 2.38 where Peter said, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So that in the name of Jesus Christ, literally on or upon Christ, any baptism not in Jesus' name is worthless. Acts 22.16 um, says, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. So do you get baptized by Calling on his name? Or do you get saved by calling on his name or getting baptized? It's get baptized, calling on his name. And they go together. You're going to be baptized because you're calling upon Jesus' name. In Acts eight sixteen, For the Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of the Samaritans who believed. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why the delay in Samaria? Well, we looked at that. They weren't baptized immediately, but they believed. They needed John and Peter to come confirm that the Samaritans had actually received the gospel. Which is interesting because the Great Commission says we're supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet throughout Acts, the apostles only baptize in the name of Jesus. Okay, well. Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you. He's talking to the Corinthians. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, that completely contradicts Mark 16, 16, that says believe, have people believe, and baptize. And Paul's saying, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross would not be made void. If all Christians are commanded to be baptized with water in the Great Commission, according to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? If that's true, why would Paul think he was exempt from such? You going to answer my question, Marty? <clears throat> Good. Uh, are some of these baptisms water baptisms? Well, I'm, I'm coming to a point where I'm telling, I'm bringing this to a point where I'm telling you, I don't think Matthew 28, 19, 20 is about water baptism. I do not think that. But to baptize them... Uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is baptize them in the truth of God. Give them the gospel. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verse, verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo. What was he talking about? His death. That's not water. 
baptize them in the truth, immerse everyone you go to in the Great Commission in the truth. So let me ask you, as I normally ask sarcastically, how many of you who believe in the Great Commission have ever baptized anyone? Maybe a father in here? How about a mother? Well, you ladies, I'm sorry, you are all in sin because the Great Commission says to go, 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 go. When you get to where you're going, go again. That's what some people say. Keep on going. And you preach the word and you baptize them. And then how many of you who've shared the gospel also have not taught them to obey everything Jesus has commanded? What a bunch of wretched sinners you are. The Great Commission is not, in my view, in my estimation, is not about water baptism. It's about immersing people in the truth of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're baptized when they believe. Right? You may not be able to teach them everything that God has taught them, but you might get them to a place where they can. So we have this Great Commission idea, and everyone thinks, well, we're about the Great Commission. Well, how many of you are actually doing it? I mean, a preacher can say, yeah, I preach the gospel every week. I baptize people, and I'm teaching them to obey. Apparently, only preachers can keep that, if we viewed it like that. Perhaps the baptism is synonymous with belief. Yes, I think it is. Perhaps it's a dry baptism done. The dry baptism of preaching the truth. So did Peter teach salvation by baptism? I mean, if we can get an example in the Old, Old Testament or New Testament about this, then we can go with the baptismal regeneration stuff that the church of Christ teaches. So the confusion of this passage was seen in Pentecostals, Mormons, and the church of Christ, the denomination church of Christ, is evident in how some teach water baptism as necessary for salvation. Peter did not teach that believers must repent, then get baptized with water. Matter of fact, turn in your Bible to Acts 2.38, just so you know exactly. You can have it open. Acts 2.38. Again, I have covered this in depth in our, our study of Acts, but not all of you are here, and I'm certain that most things I teach are not remembered every day for the rest of our lives. I mean, I, I don't either. I go back and look, what did I say about that? I've written books and gone back and said, I wrote this? Amazing. I sound really smart there. Peter said to them, Acts 2.38, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So it looks like he's saying, Repent, turn away from your sin, get baptized so that you can be forgiven for your sins. Does it not seem to imply that? And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say and then. It's just and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. People bring this up all the time. In fact, I had the question come up on Sunday night with a new members class. It's a good question to ask. Peter did not teach that believers must repent, then get baptized with water in order to receive the Holy Spirit. As I just read, that's not what he's teaching. This would contradict Paul's teaching that baptism is not part of the gospel, which he said earlier, I wasn't sent to baptize. For salvation, as we know, comes through faith alone. Water baptism is not necessary for salvation, yet it is never to be shunned as unimportant. I mean, anyone who would say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want baptism, there's something wrong with your professed salvation. It's like me telling my wife, I'd like to be married to you, but I'm not going to wear that ring. I don't think so. Why? Well, if, if I've got an allergic reaction to all rings, maybe. But, you know, really, if I'm saying, well, I just want, you know, since I'm so attractive, I want other women to see, you know, that. Charlie? Mm -hmm. Before they died, because if you didn't get baptized before you died, you couldn't go to heaven. 
There you go. So make sure you baptize. Well, I personally believe that you can. You can baptize anyone. There's nothing in the Bible that says make only a preacher, an ordained preacher. We're all ordained the moment we're saved. You need to baptize somebody, baptize them. It's, it's not limited to preachers. But when you think of it in terms of like that, if they don't get dunked and they're going to die, yeah, get them under the water as much as you can. So when he says here in Acts 2.38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Wrong interpretation stem from that word for because it looks like in, in light of, in, in movement toward, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But the Greek preposition, which is it's an E-I-S or ace in the Greek text, often and most often means in, into, or for. But it can also mean in view of or because of. So, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. Perfectly legitimate in the Greek text. Why would you get baptized? Because I've been forgiven of my sins. Now I want to go do this in public and show people what's the water mean. Well, the water is significant. It's just a a sign that I've been forgiven of my sins, washed clean because of the forgiveness of my sins, not in order to obtain forgiveness. Folks are saved by but receiving God's word. And Peter's audience received his word before they were baptized in Acts 2.41. Acts 2.44 says, and all those who had believed, not all those who were baptized, revealing that it is belief not water baptism that saves. And then, of course, you got Acts 10. Well, all who believed Peter's sermon clearly believed that the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. If you read Acts 10, Peter's preaching, everyone is saved before they were baptized. Peter said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we? They've already got the Spirit. So you can't use Acts, folks, as a prescriptive book on what we believe. It's a descriptive book about what happened in early Christianity. Well, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is, is, is what we talk about when we believe. We were baptized with that. Of what who's referring to? Well, when we're supposed to give the gospel and teach them. We give the gospel. Those who believe are baptized with the Spirit at that moment. Yeah. And then later, at the time of their choosing, sooner the better, be baptized with water, which is significant of that. Yeah, I'm just baptizing with water. But Jesus will baptize, which means that when we're saved, Jesus is the one baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. You're thinking, I don't remember that. You didn't see it, but that's what happened. Isn't that beautiful? So many things when we get to to glory that God's going to, hey, let's let's go watch the video of the dimension you couldn't see. There's going to be video in heaven. There's got to be. What's that? Well, it didn't all start. That's what the Roman Catholic Church came to believe. Yeah, that's not what Protestant baptism of with a, an infant believes. Some Protestants may believe that, but Roman Catholic Church came to believe that you have that baby baptized within in a few days. In fact, they would equate baptism with circumcision. Don't do that. That doesn't work. Um, baptize them in case the baby dies. 
Then God says, oh, good, you put the baby in water so they can come into heaven. That's just so stupid. There's no other word for it. That's just so stupid. Why would God allow a, a, a human to live in eternity or not allow because someone didn't pour water over its little head? Come on. I told you I was feeling a little saucy tonight. So, Number five, Paul separates baptism from the gospel. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 17, since it is the gospel that saves, water baptism is not part of that salvation. Yet it should accompany it, for sure. Jesus referred to baptism as a work of righteousness, Matthew 3.15. But the Bible declares clearly it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Never in John, by the way, if you're quoting these to a Church of Christ person, they're not listening. I mean, just go bang your head against the wall. You're better off. You can quote all you want. They're going to Acts. You can sell them the Greek word for. doesn't mean for, but it means because of. They're not listening. No, I mean, to be born of water is to be born of, as a human. You're born as a human, and then you're born again by the Spirit of God, which is what he's saying. Now, some would say, yeah, that means baptism and then this, and, and clearly that's not what he's saying. Um, in fact, John 3 and what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is predicated on uh, Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will rebirth you. I will give you a new heart, which is when Nicodemus says, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time and be reborn? And Jesus rebukes him. You're the teacher in Israel and you don't get this? You don't understand the prophecies of Ezekiel that tell, speak of this second birth? What's your problem, Nick? That's what he's saying. That's what I would have said if I was Jesus. <laughs> Never in John's gospel written explicitly so that folks could believe and be saved is salvation conditional to baptism. It, is just, it just repeatedly says that folks should believe and be saved. What follows is a water baptism, which is an outward show of what has happened inwardly. Jews believe that only converts to Judaism should be baptized, yet Jesus, yet Peter called Jews, each of you, to respond stressing the new covenant baptism. Repentance and baptism in Peter's context are specifically Christian, for they are done in the name of Jesus Christ. So one who represents, who repents, I should say, one who repents is baptized, calls upon the name of Jesus. So just let me summarize summarizing it here. You want to come to Christ, you repent, you're baptized, you call upon the name of Jesus Christ, and thus you commit your life to him. And by doing so, you identify with him. No wonder Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3.15 to fulfill all righteousness. So you preach the gospel to someone, you give them the truth, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by giving them the truth. They say, hey, I want that. Anyone who says, hey, I want that, proves that their name was written, on the found, written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life, proves that they were elect, chosen, adopted by God before they were ever born because they believed, proves that by believing the Holy Spirit has just baptized them, Jesus, I should say, has just baptized them with the Holy Spirit, to the point where they say, hey, I want that. So much happens in that moment. It's beautiful, and it's all of God. All of God, to all glory be him. It's not, I decided to follow Jesus. I'm an Arminian. I choose this. It's all God. 
That's what Calvinism, Calvinism is so separate from Arminianism because it's all glory to God. Arminianism is all power to man. I'm smart enough. I can do this. I did it. God, look at me. I received you. Let me in your kingdom. A Calvinist bows before the Almighty and says, you, Lord, you did it. I'm here and I will live with you because you ordained it. All glory to you and none to me. The gift of the Holy Spirit was what the 12 experienced in Acts 2, 1 to 13, when Jesus, which Jesus called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which was quoted, as you said, in Matthew, uh, is it three or four? Three, uh, with, the, with the Spirit. I baptize you with water, John the Baptist said, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, receive the Spirit are all three connected with God's promise to his people and are thus used interchangeably throughout Acts 1 and 2. Last slide for the night. Man, we're missing half of these. I, was, I had some good stuff for you on Charles Finney. We'll get to it next week. So examples of why Acts is not prescriptive. Book of Acts, Acts in Acts 2.38, the order of salvation is seemingly repent, baptism, Holy Spirit. Peter said, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's the order in Acts 2.38. Repent, baptize, Holy Spirit. Yet in Acts 10, 44 to 48, the order is repentance, receive the Holy Spirit, and then get baptized. That's telltale. In Acts 8, 38, it is repentance, then baptism, with no mention of the Holy Spirit at all. Well, either Acts is really messed up, or it's not prescriptive for the church. In Acts 8, 12 to 17, there's a delay between the baptism and the Holy Spirit, which some have taken to mean, okay, you can believe, and then later on you've got to get the Spirit. Have you, do you believe? Yeah, I believe, but have you received the Spirit? Well, if you believe, you have the Spirit. No one's believing without the Holy Spirit. He enables us, regenerates us to believe. And in Acts 19, 5 to 6, folks have been baptized by John before hearing the complete story of Jesus' atoning death. Remember, Paul meets him and said, what do you know what, about the Holy Spirit? We didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. We were baptized by John. They were then re-baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they received the Holy Spirit. Father, keep us pure in our doctrine. Give us a light of fire in us that, that we are so zealous for your truth. The zeal for your word, zeal for your house would consume us. I pray that with all the people out there today that would love to put our fires out, love to tell us to calm down, don't teach doctrine, don't teach truth, just love. Lord, I pray that we would see those people speaking for the devil himself. May we be sold out to your truth and come what may. We may have no friends. We may put us in jail. It may kill us. But may we be willing to die and suffer whatever it may be for the cause of truth. The truth that Jesus is Lord. That the word you have given us in the Bible must be opened. It must be read. It must be preached. We pray, Lord, for revival. Pray for reformation better. And may that reformation, a new reformation, be with the use of your word. May it begin with us who know your word. And if not, Lord, may we hang on tightly to you no matter what. With all that we see coming down the roadway, all the, the hatred for Christianity, all the hatred for Bible teaching, and all the words, the names that we're called, bigots and, and all the other horrible things, racists and bigots for simply believing that Jesus is the Christ, may it not affect us. May we be here to please you and you alone. Be glorified in us, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 